going to read two passages in Scripture. We'll begin with Revelation 21. Revelation 21. The other will be Revelation 22, but I want to read the first eight verses of Revelation 21 first. One through eight. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the water, of the water of fountain, of the water of life, freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now let's turn to... Read chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, 
neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which shortly must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the saying of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We consider this morning the last two questions and answers of Lord's Day 52, 128 and 129. How dost thou conclude thy prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
That is, all these we ask of thee, because thou, being our King and Almighty, art willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name may be glorified forever. What doth the word Amen signify? Amen signifies, it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of Him. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, these last two questions and answers make clear something that we brought to your attention when introducing the Lord's Prayer, which is that we cannot pray, no matter how much it might look like we are praying, no matter what words come out of our mouth, even if we used the most correct, reverent, right speech, we cannot pray except by faith. These questions and answers make clear that true prayer is an act of faith. Why question and answer 116 called the prayer the activity of Christians, that is, only those who are united to Christ by a true and living faith. It's why prayer is called the chief part of thankfulness, that is, thankfulness for all the blessings of salvation that we receive through faith. These questions and answers also make clear that true prayer is a confession of faith. That too is something that we learned earlier, that even when we address God as our Father, we do so by faith, confessing. We're not simply addressing, but confessing. We have the beginning of our prayer which is about God, about His holiness, His name, His kingdom, and His glory. That was a confession. And now, again, we conclude our prayer by confession, a rather lengthy confession. It's not a request. It's not merely an address. We confess, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. You cannot confess that except by faith. True prayer, therefore, expresses what faith knows and what faith is confident in. That's what we learned in Lord's Day 7. Faith is knowledge, even an assured knowledge, and a certain confidence. Prayer is the chief way that we express that. That's why one of the requisites of a true prayer, that is, that which true prayer consists of, is that we be fully persuaded that God, notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, 
certainly hear our prayer. That was question and answer 117. You'll notice we return back to that in these questions and answers. That's why we conclude our prayer with that tiny little word, Amen. It shall truly and certainly be. Let's consider how we conclude our prayer. Concluding our prayer this morning, the confession that this is, the confidence that it expresses, and finally the comfort that one derives from this. The confession here is very plain. Both parts are confession. Amen is a confession, but we are focusing on the main part, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Set aside for just a moment what that means, what it means that thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Notice simply now that this begins with that word for, a small, tiny word, but it means so much. That word for is intended to teach that what is about to be said, that which we say there, that which we confess, is the entire basis or the ground or the reason for the prayer. That's what it's expressing. It is the ground and the reason and the basis for the petition that just preceded it. It's why our fathers felt free to include these two questions and answers with a description and an explanation of the sixth petition. Remember the petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why? On what basis? On what basis? What's the reason we can make that request and be confident God will grant it? And the answer is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's how you need to read that. And that's really the explanation and one of the things that needs to be included in the explanation of that line. For example, when we read that this means that thou being our God art willing and able to give us all good, one ought to immediately think of the good, the great good that one just asked for in the sixth petition. For lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That's remarkable just to consider that because we considered what that request really is asking. For God not to lead us into temptation that would otherwise destroy us. We are so weak we cannot stand a moment. But notice, well ask yourself the question, how often is it not the case that when you have prayed for the forgiveness of sins or for God to deliver you from evil, your focus is on yourself. The focus is on, of course, your sin and your desire to be delivered from the evil. That's not bad in and of itself. 
But that may be the ground even why you ask. So often it is. And it's so often why we might doubt that God would answer the request to forgive our sins. You see, even the request for ourselves, even the request as it pertains our sin and our temptations and our heart are based upon and grounded upon and we ask them because for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Notice that. Just that. And of course, if that's true with regard to sin, that's true with regard to bread. Now we saw this when we went through it. We noticed the temptation to ask for bread because while we need bread, we cannot survive without bread. But if even that request is not focused upon God, then pretty soon we're asking for much more than bread, even daily bread. Pretty soon we're asking for steak and ice cream and larger cars and bigger houses, food for the next ten years, etc., If the basis for those requests is, for thine is the kingdom, the honor, and the glory forever, then that will not be. This means it's the, requ- or the basis or the ground or the reason for really the entire prayer. And by that I mean also the very reason we would get on our knees and pray. Again, this is something that's just reminding us of something we saw earlier. One of the reasons we do not pray as we ought. One of the reasons that we do not pray fervently. One of the reasons our prayers are so short and so focused upon ourselves is exactly because we have left out of sight, we have forgotten that thine is the kingdom the power and the glory. Our eyes have been focused on this is my kingdom. It's all about my power and my glory or that of others. In fact, this conclusion to prayer even answers the denial that God answers our prayer. I must mention this foolishness because in addition to the foolishness that the forgiveness of sins follows repentance or repentance precedes the forgiveness of sins is the nonsense that God does not answer our prayers or that prayer precedes God's granting of things. Again, that's based upon a notion That if we do anything, anything in our heart, anything in our mind, even if it's done entirely by God's grace, if we do something, even entirely by God's grace before God does, then we make what God does dependent upon us, i.e. we make what God does conditioned upon us. That's nonsense. And the faulty logic is exposed by the very fact 
the well-grounded biblical fact that God answers prayer. He gives in response to prayer. Now, that should be enough to refute that nonsense. Simply looking at Scripture and noting, for example, that Jesus Christ Himself said, Ask, and it shall be given you. The idea clearly that even a child can understand is ask, and then it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. If you found it before you seek it, you would not be seeking it. You're seeking it because you haven't found it, so you find it after you seek it. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. If it was already open to you, you could not knock. That's Jesus in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But to say that also is a denial of Lord's Day 45. It's a denial of the Lord's Day 45, which actually gives us the real ground, the reason, and the explanation for God answering all our prayers. Notice that. That word for, that tiny little word for, gives the reason, gives the basis, gives the ground for God responding to your prayer, for God even granting your prayer. Is it the fact that you prayed? That's a condition to God's response. Is it the fact that you prayed that invokes a response to God? Is it that the ground and the basis and the reason? Because that's what a condition is. A real condition has nothing to do really with time at all, but it has to do with something that's the ground, the basis, or the reason for something else, the cause. And Lord's Day 45 says, no. Even when you pray for bread, and God puts enough bread on your table, nothing more, for that day, the reason He put it there is because thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So pretty significant word. I find it fascinating too, whether by design I, I do not know, but it is amazing that this is how the entire Heidelberg Catechism is concluded. Be helpful for you and I when we look at the Catechism and look at the various Lord's Days and the various things that are taught, the various things we confess, the various things we learn, all of it, and realize that the entire Catechism, you remember how it began? What is thine only comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul am not my own, I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Jesus Christ. And it goes on to talk about the conviction that our sins are forgiven, that even the hairs of our heads cannot fall off them without His sovereign will, and that He makes me sincerely willing and ready to live henceforth unto Him. What's the ground or the basis of the reason for that confession and the reality of it? The answer is, for thine is the kingdom, the honor, the power, and the glory. Now what do we mean by that? Well, we may be brief because we've considered what the kingdom of God is. And oh, how we've looked in the entire catechism and seen the meaning of God's power. And therefore also, 
we were brought to see his glory. The kingdom, of course, is the church. We do not deny the fact that God sovereignly rules as king over the entire world and the entire universe, yet God has made clear that when he's referring to the kingdom, he's referring not simply to his powerful rule by providence. Certainly that's true. We confess that in Lord's Days 9 and 10. The great power of God by which He created the world and by which He continues to govern and uphold all things. But our focus is on the church. It's confessing that God, our God, is King over the church. The kingdom that is called the New Jerusalem that came down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband that we read about. There ought to be no need to prove that, but we have seen it in the catechism, in the fact the keys of the kingdom were given to the church and many other realities. And that makes clear that the power we're talking about here is the power that we often know as God's grace. The power of His grace. The power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ as it's poured out upon the church. So that helps us interpret better, even more fully, what we are talking about when we say He is willing and able to give us all good. Earlier I pointed out to you that includes the all good that He forgives our sins and delivers us from evil. But the all good there isn't simply the all good of health and the all good of food and drink and the all good of a wonderful family and a loving marriage. But it is especially and most importantly the all good that we have considered throughout the catechism. The all good that is the gift of faith. The all good that unites us to Jesus Christ. The all good that therefore incorporates us into His body, which is the church. And let's remember now, He alone is King of the kingdom. He is the King of the church. You are not the king of the church. The elders of this church are not the king of the church. Reverend Langerak is not the king of the church. No man, no earthly physical man is king. We don't determine what ought to be done and not to be done. Oh, sure, this king, like many kings, works through subjects works through members of his kingdom, especially those that he might appoint to offices, important offices. But there is only ever one king of the kingdom. Remember that. Failure to forget that has gotten more people into trouble in the church than probably anything else. Forget that and you are soon led into idealism. That you are the one that determines how the church ought to look and ought to behave and what ought to be done. 
failure to remember that can lead to disillusionment, even abandonment of the church, misidentification of it, all sorts of problems. He is king. That means his will will be done, not just the will as he's planned things, as he's determined that they be done. And remember that everything that happens, if we confess this about providence out there, how much more in here, in his kingdom. And we don't mean simply that, but we mean especially that his will, the will of his command, the will of his law, let's be very clear, will be done here. Notice the emphasis upon that in the very description of the church and the kingdom in the passage that we read. That passage, I hope you noticed, isn't about heaven. It's not about heaven at all. It's not even about the new creation. It's about the church and its place in the new creation. It will be the center of that new creation. And in the center of that new creation is the new Jerusalem. And in the center of that is Christ. But the chief expression of His rule will be that in that kingdom, nothing but His will will be done. That's really the power of His grace. The power of His grace is not at all nor may it be limited to the forgiveness of sins. It's why I stressed to you after the prayer for the forgiveness of sins, what we ought not forget, and when we forget, there's something seriously wrong as Christians, but add, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because that is actually the chief expression of His will being done. The idea is, and this goes right back to the beginning of the prayer. You remember the beginning of our prayer, the first petitions. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. And we were taught that those three are connected. The idea is that God's name is hallowed, that is, made glorious, which is what we confess at the end. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. God's name is glorious when it's hallowed. And God's name is glorious and hallowed when His kingdom comes. When His kingdom is perfected. When it's brought to the very point that we read in Revelation 21 and 22. And what we often forget is that what's being described there is not simply the removal of our tears and crying and sorrow because of cancer, because our husband passed away, because we have a wayward child, because we've lost our job and a thousand other things that make us cry, but it's over sin. It's the removal of all pain and sorrow and trouble that's caused by sin. 
It's the perfection of the kingdom of God by his will being done. Notice how it began. Let thy name be hallowed by the coming of thy kingdom, and the kingdom comes by thy will being done. And that will is done in the kingdom of God that we confess at the very end two ways. And they're both there in the passage we read. One, he so works in the hearts and souls of those with whom he has made a covenant, a covenant of grace. He so rules by his power as king, and he shows forth his majesty and glory by actually making them obey him to follow his will willingly in their heart and in their soul with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength with never a sin again. And as for the rest, they're all cast out of the world. The dogs, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the adulterers, the whoremongers, they're all cast into the lake of fire. So that's all that's living, all that's left, all that remains, perfectly does the will of God. That's what we're confessing when we say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Remember that. This is one of the chief ways God is glorified. Oh, God is glorified when we will stand Him in the day of judgment and He declares us innocent. We hear that now. We know that now. We believe that now. And that will be amazing because sins will be brought to light that we never thought of. We never even perhaps saw. We're going to see how wretched and corrupt we really are and then hear the King say, innocent. Not guilty, perfectly righteous, perfectly obeyed. But even more than that, God will show that even in this life, His will was being done by His people. Indeed, they who were dead not simply lived, but they who were blind saw, they who were deaf heard, those who were lame walked, those who were disobedient rebels followed the will of the king and all of that to the glory of his name and forever. Because what we read in Revelation 21 and 22 is just the beginning. Now, there's confidence here, and here is where I want to focus upon that last word, amen. Notice how that word especially expresses confidence. Of course, the confidence is in, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. There's confidence there in that confession. How else can it be but the child of God who lives by faith must add amen. A familiar word and one that always amazes me. If you've traveled abroad, if you've traveled to other lands where they speak other languages and you go to other churches that confess Jesus Christ, you will discover that they all use that word. There may be different words for faith. There may be different sounds even for Jesus Christ. All kinds of things. But amen always stays the same no matter what Bible translation you get doesn't matter the language, the last word of the Bible will be amen. 
that should strike us. Everything comes down to that word. It's God's last word to the entire human race. It's God's last word to us. And it's amazing that this is really the rebellion against God that is the human race, that is us by nature. God says, let there be. And He adds, Amen. Let it be. It shall surely be. Every word that God has spoken, every word, every promise, every exhortation, every warning, every word of comfort, every thing in the Bible comes with God's Amen. It's we who try to fool ourselves otherwise. Oh, God surely will not visit my sin with those kinds of judgments. I think I can continue living in this sin, even though I know it's sin, and even though I can read the Bible too. The fact that God forgives my sins is enough. I'm going to continue living in it, and what God warns won't happen. No, amen. God will do it. I wouldn't test Him any further. I wouldn't try his patience a second longer. Now the world, even our old nature, as soon as we hear what God says, we say, no, that's not going to happen. No, that's not the way it happened, and that's not going to happen. Our greatest trials and temptations are, well, that's not going to happen. But we have to remember, that's God's Word. He seals every promise with that Word. Your sins are forgiven. Amen. You will not be led into temptation so to fall into perdition everlastingly. Amen. Jesus Christ has washed away your sins. He has raised from the dead. Amen. You, you will pass from this life into heaven and return with Jesus. Amen. Now there's a reason why this word ends every one of our creeds why it's the last word in the Bible, why it really needs to be appended, at least in our mind, to every promise God makes, every word that He says, every curse that He gives, every word of blessing. It doesn't matter. And that's because Jesus is the Amen of God. Do you notice Jesus emphasized that? Now, Jesus Himself said that. Jesus himself called himself the Amen of God. And he himself used that word in a way that you and I can't. You and I, when we use that word, we say it only by faith, according to what we believe. But Jesus said it over and over and over again. I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And we read, surely I come quickly. Amen. But did you notice Jesus called himself the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega? He is the beginning of our prayer. He is the one who gives us faith, faith that unites us to him, He is the power of that faith by His Spirit, and He is the certainty of that prayer. He is that Amen. 
Don't simply say that word, beloved, as you and I often do, which is, now's the time to unfold your hands and open your eyes. That's what it means. It's a cue. Really no different than clicking our fingers or giving some other sort of signal, a dog whistle, as it were. Remember what you're saying. It. It, that is. Everything I've prayed for. Everything I've prayed for in true faith. Not the foolish things I've prayed for. Not the things that I've added sort of as my own desires. But all those things I've added in the confidence that His is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. I may say it shall certainly and surely be. Now, do you see how that is what brings us comfort? How often, beloved, hasn't it been that you've made a prayer in your need, in your desire, or made a prayer even because, well, it's your custom, only to finish your prayer and be right back where you started? You feel the need to pray again and again and again because maybe God didn't hear your prayer. So we go out and we get others to pray for us. Join me in my prayer because I'm not sure God answered me. I'm not sure God's going to really give me what I want. Come storm the doors of heaven with me. We need to be persistent in prayer, but it may never be persistence that's born out of unbelief and doubt. Why is it that that happens to us? Why is it that sometimes we feel that our prayers never went past the ceiling? Or conversely, why is it sometimes that we could hardly express what we needed? Maybe all we could do is groan. Maybe our prayer was just a flash that we could hardly articulate consciously in our own mind what we just asked God. And we know, without any doubt whatsoever, God heard us. Why and what explains that? The answer is faith. You see, when faith believes and faith trusts and faith knows what we have explained and faith makes that confession and faith has that certainty that it can say amen knowingly, then there's peace, comfort. There's joy, and I mean this, joy that nothing else can bring. You may think that your money and your cars and your boats and your RVs and snowmobiles and quads, your houses, your fields, and everything else can bring you contentment and happiness. I'm telling you, they cannot. Sometimes God brings us to see that in ways that are almost terrifying. God will put you in a position deliberately to show you that none of those things can help you in the day of trouble. Not one of them. Hopefully that's long before death so that we don't spend much of our life in misery. But if not, then death itself will do that. you find that only God, only faith in God can deliver and give comfort and hope. 
And you receive that through prayer. Prayer avails much. So says James. So says the Heidelberg Catechism. There's peace to be found in prayer, contentment and comfort. The one who prays goes away happy and rejoicing, though they may only have for that day their daily bread, though they may have, as we might say, only the forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of the perseverance of the saints. But that's enough. And to that, faith says, Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word, for Thy Word of truth in the Heidelberg Catechism, for the explanation of prayer, the biblical explanation of prayer. And we pray for faith, so that we may so pray as our Lord taught us. And in that way, to be able to say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.